0: there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have two students with me, and uh, this is at least a two for day. This is our second attempt at a podcast today. Lance, you're back, uh, okay. but this is your first podcast, so you haven't had a chance to tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, I've never been uh, the, the focus of the podcast, so thank you again for having me. And I also want to make sure that I say thank you for a really good rotation. This is my last day, and I've really enjoyed being here. So... Uh, I'll, I'll let uh, Taylor introduce himself and then I'll tell you a little bit about me. Sounds good.
2: So on this side is Taylor Van Leeuwen. I'm a fourth year med student at Rocky Vista.
0: And what's odd is I usually start left to right because our, our guest star is usually never on the most left seat. In this case, uh kind of blew it. So normally I would have introduced you first, Taylor. Sorry about that. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're headed, what you're interested in. Yeah.
1: Um, that's a really hard question at this point. I'm... Uh, almost to the end of my third year and i should know what i want to do but it's been a hard hard time coming trying to figure out what i want to do urology is at the top i, I come from a strong anatomy background i used to teach at the university of utah medical school in their anatomy lab and i love surgery it's been a complete blast but unfortunately i also like the cerebral nature of internal medicine i love the relationships built uh, along a clinic sort of uh, environment. And so I'm still struggling with that question. (laughs) (laughs) I I have no doubt you'll do a great job with that. Uh, We would
0: like, as a team, we always enjoy hearing where people end up, what they decide doing. So feel free to check back in with us when you get a chance. And if not, we might just check in with uh, uh, your
1: uh, father Yeah. Dallas will probably tell you and be happy to talk about where I end up. (laughs) Uh, I I think we should probably get him back on this podcast. I I probably plan on rotating here my fourth year, and uh, it would be interesting to have him come in and talk about some of the things he's done, so... I shouldn't take too much
0: more time about that, but um, one of the things that has consistently surprised me is I feel like there's something that's not happening at the Utah State Hospital that we've developed this really incredible process or program, and I'll talk to to Dallas about it, your father, who is the superintendent of the Utah State Hospital, and he'll say, oh yeah, 20 years ago when I was a nurse on such and such unit, we were doing that, and I'm like, dang it, when am I going to do something that uh, Dallas didn't already do? So... It's always a lot of fun to to not make uh, this podcast too long. Tell me a little bit about how you came to
1: this podcast, if you would. Absolutely. So this podcast is about the clock drawing test, which really comes down to neurocognitive disorders, and that's what I want to focus on. Uh, The original goal that I had when I came to the Utah State Hospital was I wanted to be better at mental status exams. I had a patient when I was doing my family med uh, rotation that was uh, suspicious for dementia. And I was thrown into the room and I felt very unprepared despite uh, having studied my neuro exam and knowing what I wanted to do. I didn't know how to interpret it. I didn't know how to interact with the patient. And I felt uh, very just uncomfortable as I came out and gave my differential diagnosis to, to my attending. So when I came here, I wanted to really expand that skill Uh, and in doing so, I came across the clock drawing test, which is a test that I feel like most of us know we're, we're taught at some point in school about drawing a clock, but what, and I'm sure we're about to uncover this. There's a lot to know about a clock drawing test that I'm certain not all of us learned in medical school. And I think that it's a very interesting, has an interesting history and interesting application to medicine.
0: Let's define a few terms as we take off, uh, as we start this, and then we'll kind of jump into the area that we hope is high yield for the shelf
1: exam. So you have a couple of tests that you want to describe very briefly. So the, the first one I, I want to talk about is obviously the clock drawing test. Um, th- this test has a lot of different variations. In fact, um, I wouldn't be surprised if, as I'm, as you're listening to this, You would find that the way you learned how to do the clock drawing test is different than the way i learned it uh but there's sort of a standard to it it's there is a draw to command version of the of the test in which the patient is given a blank piece of paper and then asked to draw a clock and place the hands at 10 past 11. that is a very standardized and uh normal way to do the test there's also a um uh, copy-to-command version of the test in which somebody is giving, given a version of the clock to copy and some of the the features or elements of the clock may be given to the patient. So in that sense, uh, I think that it's important to recognize what, you know, what we're talking about as we're going through this because I, I plan to use some of those terms draw-to-command and copy-to-command pretty willy-nilly. I want to make sure we know what we're talking about. The next one is the, the mini-cog, which is a... Uh, a test that actually is trademarked and can be downloaded online from the MiniCog website, and it utilizes a three-word recall along with the clock drawing test, and I'll reference that at the end to kind of make a point as we come to the end here. Um, I do want to also point out that as we look at these tests, uh, we're looking at several different cognitive domains, which I'd love to go into more detail about, but. Uh, Unfortunately, there's very many cognitive domains that we could talk about. Uh, The clock drawing test, though, evaluates a few really key ones. The first one's language. So if I tell you to go ahead and draw a clock and put the hands placed at 10 past 11, there's a certain amount of language that needs to be understood there before you can go ahead and execute that command. So it evaluates language, it evaluates executive function, especially in the verbiage that we use there, 10 past 11. I believe the term we use is recoding. You have to recode what 10 past 11 means to go ahead and put that minute hand uh, at the two, because that's not a 10. (laughs) Right. So you have to recode that, and I think that that's part of our executive function there's also this perceptual motor ability that we're using so it's a cool test in that it uses several different cognitive domains which to me seems like that sounds like it's going to be a pretty sensitive test right we're going to look at all these areas and if something's wrong in one of them we're gonna we're gonna have some issues uh we're, we might find that that might not be the case as we what, go along. what is
0: that called in literature foreshadowing yeah that's okay. right <laughs> now i want i want to ask you a question if i can yeah I have been impressed by the specific language that is required in the different draw clock tests. I've always heard the test be, I would like you to draw a clock. I would like you to make the face large enough that you can put all of the numbers on the face and then set the hands at 10 minutes after 11. So I've heard this very specific language in the past. And I'm not not sure if when you say 10 past 11, if that's more accurate, if there's like a specific written kind of dialogue that we need to use. And I'm looking forward to hearing that because I, I think the exact words
1: in this test matter. Exactly, and in fact, that this is, as we go along this journey, we're gonna find that uh, a, lot, a lot of the use of this test has not had a real standardized way of doing it. There's very many versions of how that's said And the reason why I like using the mini cog as kind of a way to wrap this up is that it does standardize the verbiage that is used when interacting with the patient. I think that adds to its validity.
0: So let's start with dementia then. Um, Dementia is what was in the DSM uh, 4. I think maybe I started learning with the DSM 3 uh, R revised. And then I think the DSM-4 came out while I was in residency, or maybe the 4TR. I, I'm having a tough time remembering now. And we're at the DSM-5. Dementia
1: and Alzheimer's dementia; those are gone. Correct. the The now def- definitions. This actually caught me by surprise as I was as I was putting this together. Really puts neurocognitive disorders into two categories with subtypes of those categories. So the first one that I'd like to visit is major neurocognitive disorders. Uh, I think Taylor has a really good way of, of putting this together. Taylor, do you mind telling us about the diagnostic criteria for major neurocognitive disorders?
2: Sure. So the major neurocognitive disorder disorders, um, do you want me to read it the official language or the... Uh, either no, way. Either way. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> evidence of significant cognitive decline from a previous level of performance in one or more cognitive domains. So basically just, it does require a, a multiple tests, I believe, um, to, to really determine their level of, level of cognition.
0: In fact, I think the DSM makes it very clear that... Um, We don't want psychiatrists necessarily making the diagnosis of dementia and that unless there's some very, very clear evidence of a, what is it, insidious decline over time, I think is the kind of language they use. And what they recommend for the the diagnosis is to have that testing, at least that's what I I noticed in the other neurocognitive uh, disorders. In those domains, I just want to point out very quickly, you mentioned three of those before, but complex attention, executive functioning, learning and memory, language, perceptual motor, and social cognition. So, six areas that are defined in the DSM as being those domains. So, you have to have at least one of those domains change to have a diagnosis of dementia, and preferably through uh, validated testing.
1: Yes, I think that the, the kind of the, the caveat here is that there needs to be concern. That can come from the patient, a family member, that can come from a caregiver. Um, and that they, I, I think that's valid. I think that, I think about my, my grandmother who's currently uh, experiencing Alzheimer's dementia as, she, as she's declining, uh, the family notices that. The, as she comes into the doctor's office, she's able to do those normal tasks that occur in the doctor's office. And it may, they may miss something, but the family knows. And so the concern's there, and then we want to document that. So we would then uh, show the cognitive performance declining through some sort of documentation.
2: Which leads us to our uh, next criteria. Uh, It's being that these cognitive defects interfere with independence in everyday activities, um, and at a minimum requiring assistance with complex instrumental activities of daily living, such as paying bills or managing medications. Um, Also, these uh, cognitive deficits cannot uh, occur exclusively in the context of delirium, which, again, for third-year med students, at least for me, when I was in third year, I had a hard time differentiating delirium from dementia and other cognitive disorders um, personally. yeah.
0: So, So that's a great test question, and generally speaking, the answer is that if there's a sudden change in cognition, that is a delirium, especially if there's a medical condition that's identified underlying that. Yeah. The place where that gets a little bit more difficult is if you have a mild neurocognitive disorder, uh, vascular type, I think is what it's called, where you might see stepwise changes in cognition. But the delirium also has a waxing and waning nature to it. And so most of the test questions that you'll see that focus on that, We'll talk about that waxing and waning with some of the sundowning kinds of features that, that seem to be prominent in those exams. It's a great point.
2: So uh, also the cognitive deficits uh, are not better explained by any other uh, mental disorder, such as like major depressive disorder or schizophrenia.
1: I think that's a big one. I think that as we, uh, one of the big ones when I was in my psychiatry course the end of second year was making sure that you didn't have an insidious onset um, subdural hematoma uh, where you have a very slow bleed that's over time, over the course of a month, causing a neurocognitive change. Failing to to grab that would be catastrophic. I think we see
0: those things with uh, uh, hypothyroid uh, in some patients as well. And then, of course, the, the specifiers of the different types that can be, and I, I like that they've been able to expand those specifiers and simplify the criteria, make the, the domains much more clear. I, I think this is a step forward from my perspective in the conceptualization of neurocognitive disorders. Absolutely.
1: Um, the, go ahead. Oh, sorry. The, the next section, uh, or the next realm, is minor neurocognitive disorders. And Just to summarize this so we don't get back into the meat and potatoes of the diagnosis just to point out the differences here the evidence of that co- neurocognitive decline is modest in a mild neurocognitive disorder and it, The cognitive decline does not interfere with their ADLs So mm-hmm. this is the subtle thing that I think we miss in clinics. Mm-hmm. I think that we The the patient's functioning fine by definition. Mm -hmm. The patient is having, you know, relatively normal day-to-day life. But if there's concern from family members, I think that this is when the primary care physician or somebody in that role could easily come in and do one of these tests that we're about to talk about, like a clock drawing test, to document whether there actually is decline. And we'll talk about how uh, important and valid that is.
0: I I want to point out one thing. I think you mentioned activities of daily living, ADLs, but I think I noticed when Taylor was reading through that, that he said instrumental activities of daily living. And IADLs are actually somewhat different than ADLs. And it's been a while. I used to uh, ask all of my medical students, because we focus on ADLs here at the Utah State Hospital, to name ADLs, and when they got uh, wise to the idea that I was going to ask that question, then I has, had to start asking what IADLs were. You know, you've got to stay a step ahead of your students, and uh, there are some there are various tests that you can, uh, or various maybe surveys or questionnaires that you can give caregivers that look at IADLs as well. So so you can get some of that documented
1: history with the impairment and function. I have a su- strong suspicion if you would have asked me that, I would have got that question wrong in <laughs> rounds. So <laughs> uh, so the next thing I wanted to do, and just to keep this high yield, because I believe that this is the source of many of the questions on shelf exams in step two, is going to be the differentiating of each of these etiologies of major and minor neurocognitive uh, disorders. So I'd like to start with Alzheimer's disease. Um, which in, in this particular, uh, disease has a very insidious onset without a plateau. Uh, there's evidence of a family history or genetic predisposition. So you have to be suspicious of the Alzheimer's dementia, and there needs to be clear evidence of decline, steadily progressive, and there's no evidence of any sort of mixed etiology. I like to take the patterns out of these diagnosing, uh, schemes what I see here is there's a temporal component. So over time, this is getting worse and there's no point in which it stays the same over a period of you know, some significant amount of time. And I also see here that there, there needs to be evidence associated with the Alzheimer's such as family history. So there's two things that you can use to kind of cross check yourself. How does that
0: differ from a frontotemporal dementia? So if we use Alzheimer's disease as sort of our baseline and how does every other condition differ from
1: Alzheimer's? Let's start with
0: frontotemporal
1: dementia. Absolutely. So frontotemporal dementia has that same insidious onset. There's no plateau.
0: And by no plateau you mean it continues to get worse over time. There's not a point where the worsening stops. Yeah, there's not a
1: period of months where the family feels the, the, Individuals functioning the same, and then suddenly there's a dropper uh, decline. This particular type of dementia also spares learning and memory and perceptual motor function. Uh, I had a question. What, what exactly does that mean? What, how would I notice that in a patient? So I think
0: my, my reading of this is that you would see the other areas decline where uh, in Alzheimer's disease my, or I'm sorry, a neurocognitive uh, disorder Alzheimer's type, my understanding is that it's, it's almost like, first of all, you stop being able to learn things, but then your memory seems to uh, slowly erode, starting from the most recent events, backwards, right? But memory wouldn't necessarily erode in, this, uh, in, in uh,
1: the frontotemporal dementia specifier. Does that make sense? That does, yeah. So, and, and I think that's really important to point out on a board question because those are the types of clues that they're going to try to get you uh, to notice. There's two variants of frontotemporal deme- uh, dementia that specifier. Uh, there's a behavioral variant where the individual becomes disinhibited. They might become apathetic. They might lose their ability to express empathy. Uh, hyperorality. Uh, stereotyped or compulsive ritualistic behavior these types of things show up on that behavioral side um the language variant is is essentially exactly what it sounds like it's the language variant uh there's decline in language ability and and that's essentially what what the uh primary decline is in um so frontal temporal dementia, I've, I find fascinating. It's a very interesting uh, disease. Did you read anything that suggested you could have
0: uh, a mixed type variant with both behavioral and language uh, symptoms
1: or? When I was going through DSM-5, I w- was not aware of, of a mixed type that I saw, but I'm certain that you might know something that I don't. No, no
0: not necessarily. I, I just, uh, I mean, you, you have some really great detail here. And to be honest, I I haven't reviewed this recently enough that I feel comfortable that I know this uh, well enough to teach it. So I'm, I'm kind of sitting back just trying to ask good questions. Oh, good. Well, I, I don't have the answers. <laughs> <laughs> so how would you compare uh, Alzheimer's disease, insidious onset without plateau, we're looking for a family history or genetic predisposition. How would you compare that
1: to a Lewy body dementia? Lewy body dementia, I think, is very interesting. When you look at the, the it has that same uh, insidious onset with the temporal side of things. However, their cognition is fluctuating. So you're going to have so this waxing and waning ebb and flow of cognition. This also has hallucinations that may be present. Um, and w- the way I was taught to, to kind of recognize Lewy body dementia, especially in a board question, is to look for the use of antipsychotics, which normally should help those hallucinations, uh, and then have them make the situation worse, especially as they, uh, a- as this particular type of dementia has Parkinsonism, which comes on later as the disease progresses.
0: And, and my understanding of the worsening isn't that the hallucinations get worse. It is that the Parkinsonism gets worse. Correct. Now, the, the thing that's very interesting about that is every once in a while I've seen questions that say, which antipsychotic would you use if they become overwhelming? and uh, sometimes the answer is Seroquel or Quetiapine, and some specialty clinics also would use Clozapine. Um, I'm not sure that you get those on the shelf exam, but worth pointing out, uh, because I have seen those questions show up. Oh, the other thing that shows up quite often with uh, diffuse Lewy body dementia is uh, I believe Lilliputian hallucinations. So these are often visual hallucinations, and they are small, right? So reference to Gulliver's travel, and uh, the Lilliputians. And so you'll have small
1: animals or small people that uh, people with diffuse Lewy body dementia are seeing. Very, very interesting. The the board question that I remember coming across just uh, a couple days ago was associated with an individual who started seeing uh, people in his home around the corners and uh, that was related to his, his illness. But they didn't mention that they were small people. They did not, unfortunately. I think that that's... Uh, Visual hallucinations,
0: though, I think are the best common denominator. I think that's a, a great question. Uh, how would you then distinguish Alzheimer's disease from a Lewy body... Deme- I'm sorry, from a vascular dementia uh, subtype?
1: I actually think that, just so I'm not excluding Taylor the whole time, I think that I would love to get his input on this one. This is a uh, interesting variant of, 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 of neurocognitive disorder
2: yeah so uh, the, the vascular type is going to have um, usually onset of, of the deficits uh temporarily related to one or more cerebrovascular events um, so usually going to be known not always but, right. but will usually be known and uh, the decline is prominent Um, in complex attention and frontal executive function. And I remember this is the stepwise decline uh, in in cognition. And that's, that's what I always remember is while he was doing his taxes and then the next month he couldn't put his pants on. And then a month later he was even worse. And that's kind of how the board, board exams kind of listed out that way where overall, yeah, he's got dementia and we know that, but what type it's just that where it's, it plateaus for a little while, and then really drops down, and it's typically in line with uh, additional cerebrovascular events.
1: Correct. I also think that this particular uh, variant has interesting, uh, with its etiology being cerebrovascular, I mean, this can affect any part of the brain. So the presentation can be very uh, wide. The board questions that I, that I've come across range from identifying that there is a stepwise uh, progression to giving you a set of labs that clearly show some sort of uh, risk factors for vascular disease, and then having you interpret it from there. So there's a number of ways this can show up. I think boards really like this one.
0: I think so too, and as you're talking about labs, not just labs, but physical presentation. so i wait. You might also hear a family history of uh, myocardial infarction, which would give the same kind of predisposing risk factors for cerebrovascular uh, infarct. Uh, traumatic brain injury versus Alzheimer's disease. I'm going to go ahead and uh, cut to the chase and say, People that have had a TBI, yeah, <laughs> I think <laughs> kind the, of that's that's uh, the first
1: thing you're going to think about. I, I think the, re- the even the rest of these these specifiers are going to get pretty simplified. I, I kind of kept the the best of the, the beginning. No, not that one is better than the other. Although I, I do think it's interesting that uh, he, that it does specify
0: in the criteria that there has to be a loss of consciousness. And there are some discussions about post, uh, post-trauma post amnesia. And if I recall correctly, in a previous podcast, we talked about uh, traumatic brain injury and uh, the meaning of
1: amnesia either before or after. So I, I think it would be great to go back and look at those. I, I've... I took your advice and started listening, probably too late, started listening to those podcasts to and from the, the hospital, uh, you usually get to the high-yield stuff right away. And uh, th- anyway, that's good advice. <laughs> I, I think the high-yield stuff is pretty high-yield, yeah. generally,
0: if I put that in the in the specifier or in the text. And I tend to think that the rest of the podcasts are fairly interesting to at least
1: me. <laughs> <laughs> so So, prion disease prion disease is always going to be associated with, with some sort of risk factor. that If you're not getting a, a clear evidence of, you know, you know, cannibalism or something along those lines.
0: Ingestion of some sort of uh, meat product or type of product, brain. Uh, also, I think the other risk factor that will sometimes pop up is surgery, head surgery, uh, some sort of CNS surgery.
1: Correct. Right. And so you'll see those risk factors and that will give you the clues. I think the big thing here, if they're not going to give you those clues is going to be the motor features, which you're going to have this insidious rapid onset of motor features, which include ataxia, myoclonia, myoclonus, and then potentially other biomarkers on labs. Uh, the next one that that we can talk about is Parkinson's disease. This is different from Lewy body disease. Uh, Uh, the woolly body dementia specifier as that the patient already has Parkinson's disease. Right. Um, And then the uh, insidious onset as well. And we've got to make sure that there's not a mixed etiology in that one. Huntington's disease is associated with family history. Great review. And uh, we're not going to
0: tackle treatment of uh, neurocognitive disorders right now, um, I think at some point in the future we may tackle that. I think it's probably outside the scope of what we want to do today. Yeah. I am curious. Um, one of the things that's been fascinating to me over time is when I read about the history of uh, substance, like when we did the, the podcast on cot, man, that, that, that history and the way that the the substance misuse and the way that substance itself became modified, I, that, the synthetic cathinones, right? that, that was just a fascinating history to me. I think you've developed one of the histories that may be now among my very favorites. Okay. Talk to me about how the draw clock came to
1: be. Absolutely. So in, in my preparation for this podcast, I went online and found various versions of this history. So I tried to get the common denominators amongst these. Most of this summary comes from the book by Edith Kaplan, who we're about to talk about and some detail in her book, The Clock Drawing and Neuropsychological Analysis. She was on that book, along with a few other authors. Uh, so let's go ahead and rewind the clock, if you will. I've been waiting so long to say that. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> so let's go to the early 1900s with a uh, British neurologist named MacDonald Critchley. Uh, he is working with British soldiers around the uh, around wartime. And he is the first person, as far as I can tell, tell that has published anything associated with, with clock drawing. Uh, in his, he writes a book called The Parietal Lobe. And here, in his study of the, the parietal lobe and how... Okay, I, I, I'm sorry. Was it a big seller? I, I, I really <laughs> doubt it. That, that is not flying off the shelves. <laughs> that, that would be a tough one to, to pick up, but... I, pretty impressive oh yeah the if i think about the pridal lobe i don't think about the 1900s i don't you know i, I no. typically think about newer and uh more modern science so yeah definitely not not a popular uh text at the time but he is he's very interested in apraxia amongst wounded soldiers and this is where he talks about it is in this book and so just a reminder of what apraxia is, this is the inability to respond to a request. So if I say, please take your hand and put it to your your nose, that is, if you're unable to do that, that is apraxia. Is that correct?
0: That's my understanding. And one of the most compelling uh, neurological exams I ever saw was not where there were subtle findings on the neurological exam that we typically think of as you know, strength, uh, reflexes, sensation kinds of things. It was a neurologist who asked a patient, show me how you would brush your teeth and and show me how you would put the toothpaste on the toothbrush and show me how you would comb your hair. And I was so um, stunned by the inability of this patient to, to do that or the limit, the impaired ability. And then how from uh, the, uh, a dementia that was—it uh, uh, was a vascular dementia, not a not vascular in the stepwise, but um, it, it was a vasculitis oh. uh, induced dementia, and that change over time, his, the the early subtle signs of the apraxia is onto that. Uh, I'll never forget that. You know, you have yeah. those
1: patients like that. So yeah, well, well, well described. Awesome. Uh, in in his research, he kind of relates this relates apraxia to the posterior parietal lobe, the corpus callosum. And at this point he's able to confirm that there is a relationship between the clock drawing test and apraxia. And he kind of establishes the clock drawing test as a diagnostic tool. So now we have this diagnostic tool that's established in the 1900s and it becomes popular. You have lots of uh, physicians uh, completing this and using this in their practice, Uh, in Edith Kaplan's book, you see that you have 595 physicians were surveyed and 98% of those physicians were using the clock drawing test in their clinical practice. However, of those 98%, only about 62% uh, of these individuals, uh, or I guess I shouldn't say only, 62% of them had informal training meaning that you have a mentor that has probably shown them the test. There wasn't some sort of textbook that they got this from. They're not using a uh, standardized text or study to, to do this. Um, and then on top of that, of, of the 98%, 40% had used it in research. And what we should point out here is, at this point in the 1980s, as this test has you know, snowballed into popularity, Uh, there's no normative study completed on it, which is unusual for medicine. Um, it it feels almost so many red flags go up when I hear that they're, we're using a test that just doesn't have the, the data associated with it.
0: I want to jump in for just a second. I think this is one of the most fascinating parts of this discussion. One thing that I hope to have happen with these podcasts is that my students jump into the literature and find what the evidence is for the things that they're doing. I think we often talk about the limitations of what can be studied. We've talked about uh, hoping to have something different in the studies we've talked about, even case series, and understanding there are limitations in all of these different ways that we look at the data and just wanting more data, right? But I think it's surprising how many things we learn from somebody that we never stop and say, hey, am I, is that the right thing to do? Should we do it? What's the evidence for this practice that I have? Referring somebody for a dementia evaluation based on a tool that may or may not work has a lot of implication.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I think that as, as, as you look at what happens up here up to the 1900s is, you, it, I think it's really socially driven. Uh, the clock drawing test as as I've used it is very easy to talk about especially with family members if I have a patient draw a clock and they do it wrong I mean that might be your mom and your mom taught you how to you know tell time and now all of a sudden I show you her clock as she's slowly uh, kind of declining that that clock drawing is very easy to say hey something's up and I think that's I'm speculating, but that kind of seems like it, it's part of its popularity. I wouldn't be surprised by that. I know that
0: there are some tests that the patients will ask me, tell me why you do that test. And I'll say, uh, well, it tests certain parts of the brain and uh, <laughs> tr- tradition, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, that's what I do. That's <laughs> what I do. And and I, I do try to look at the evidence behind the different tools that we use. And I think... Uh, many of the items that are many mental status exam are descriptive without necessarily being diagnostic or helpful in diagnosis.
1: Absolutely. So let, let's go ahead and move forward here to 1994, where, where this book, uh, uh, Clock Drawing, comes out and talk about Edith Kaplan, who, I mean, we could just do a quick Google search and just see <laughs> how amazing this woman is. It's just... I don't One think thing it's a after quick, another. it's
0: not a quick Google search. No,
1: no, there are so much. I mean, her Wikipedia page was wonderful to read and it just led me down so many, uh, time wasting rabbit holes that, uh, where I could have been studying. I guess it wasn't a waste of time. I just enjoyed doing, reading about her. She had so many cool things that she had done. She contribute. She contributes all these neuropsych tests that we use in practice today. I mean, I could talk all day about her. Um, so, just very briefly, for example, the ways decafs um,
0: important tools used by our psychologists in the diagnosis of many conditions, but largely in terms of neurocognitive disorders, I believe. Absolutely, and that seems to be where a lot of our research, and along with many of our colleagues, I, I, I better back back up. I don't think the ways or the decafs are used in diagnosing other conditions. I think it's a measure of cognition.
1: Okay. Uh, I, I know that the, these tests are used frequently, and she had a great contribution to the mental health world. And I, 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 I think we are doing a good thing to stop and say, "Hey, Edith Kaplan was awesome." Yeah,
0: and and I think maybe, and I don't know this yet, these tests might help differentiate between the types of dementia.
1: Absolutely.
0: So the what, de, the decafs
1: and the uh, the wastes. So going forward with this book that's published in 1994, she goes ahead along with her colleagues and calls out the fact that there is no groundwork done to establish the validity of this test, the clock drawing test. Um, so now she goes acro- uh, on to do a normative study and gives a validity behind it. So looking at that normative study, I do want to point out that Google Books only gave me you know, 20 pages of the book and I, I'm poor and I don't have $50 to spend on the book. So I got to that point, and it gave me some of the coolest information. But unfortunately, as a poor medical student, I don't have the the funds to, to purchase this book. But I did get to read most of this normative study. Uh, just a quick precursor to this discussion. Uh, she goes ahead and looks at how does a normal clock get drawn, especially amongst age groups, normalized amongst different... Uh, Uh, disease states and essentially she's able to say that okay as long as you can make a closed contour put numbers in a reasonable location meaning that they're where they where another number shouldn't you're not putting a number where another number should be uh and then you're able to place the the hands of the clock in a relative position close to the time i told you to that's a normal clock um and what's interesting about this study is it starts to develop an understanding of the sensitivity and specificity of this test, which isn't super good. <laughs> um, we start to see that the, the clock drawing test r- is roughly about 56% sensitive and 85% specific. And this is after her work is replicated and reviewed and dialed up. So that was a study uh, posted in 2008 uh that's not good numbers no that's not very good numbers yeah i mean when i think of a screening test i want a test that's going to get all of my all my patients that have the disease and then and then some i want even some false positives that can lead me to my diagnostic test
0: Preferably Excuse not false positives, but it's hard to have 100% specificity and 100% se- exactly. Percent sensitivity. Exactly, uh,
1: I, I would rather have you know a, a super awesome test, but at the very least, I need a sensitive test, and 56% just isn't that great. No, um, and yet it's still used. <laughs> so, so the the conundrum continues. Right. Um, going. So, so what's been done to try and get a better test? I think the, the best thing that has been done and what I've noticed most is that this clock drawing test tends to be combined with other tests. That's how we get a, a better version of this test. There are several studies that, that I've gone through that show that the clock drawing test has a relationship to the MMSE and the MOCA, uh, but more often it shows that it's, that it's a complement those
0: tests so the mocha if you did listen to our podcast i think it was the first podcast we we published it or the second maybe i I don't remember yeah
1: it's it's pretty far down on the list it's pretty far down
0: on the list i think the uh as i recall the draw clock is included in the mocha with a very simplified scoring system correct tell me about
1: the various scoring systems there are so many (laughs) if you look at how often the scoring system is different uh, there's at least 13 different scoring systems. And that was at the time, uh, that Edith Kaplan was, was going in and, and doing some of this research. There is another study that, uh, that I actually end up referencing quite a bit as do, when I was doing a lot of my, my research on this topic. It sounds like it was done by a friend of yours. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, uh, it was a
0: review article, Donald Agnoyan, Dr. Donald Agnoyan, who, uh, is uh, an amazing physician, and currently he is a professor of
1: medicine at one of the medical
0: schools in Southern
1: California. He his work's great. I, I loved reading his his his, uh, his work. Going through what what he was able to do, he essentially did a bunch of research associated with the different types of errors that we see within the clock drawing test.
0: So I want to back up. I don't think. Uh, Dr. Agnoyan did the original research. I think what he did was summarized what research had been done in a review article. And I think uh, Dr. Elizabeth Hurley, one of my mentors, was also involved in that. And and what they said is they didn't... I don't think they said this is a diagnostic tool. I think what they said is if you see these errors, these are the neurological
1: correlates from these errors. Correct. So talk to me about those errors, if you would. Absolutely. So there's... Really six that they end up talking about that they found from from these studies that they look over. Uh, first one is graphical difficulties. Second one is stimulus-bound response. Third is conceptual deficit. Fourth is spatial planning deficit. Fifth is preservation. Perseveration. I Perseveration. Think. I knew I'd mess that up. And six is the size of the clock. Yeah. I think some of those are
0: are, are very self-descriptive. So size, size of the clock, uh, quite often what we see is, at least in some of the Parkinsonism patients, is a very small clock. Um, sometimes you'll see a very large clock. Um, size of the clock, I think, varies a lot. And I think it, again, matters whether it's a copy or a command, right? at exactly. The one we're talking about, to command. Uh, graphical difficulty tell me what that means graphical. what does that what does that uh, describe
1: essentially what you're seeing is is a almost scribbled version of the clock it's a, a, a in a qualitative assessment are the lines on the clock straight is the clock face distorted are the hands of the clock connected in the middle or mm-hmm. are they somewhere off to the side or you know connecting or connecting at all does the circle connect on the clock? I think is exactly. one of those. Yeah. Yeah. So, do we make a full circumferential uh, connection there? Uh, this is commonly associated when you have issues with this, with Huntington's uh, dementia as well as vascular dementias. Hmm. Uh, es- essentially, we're we're disrupting the motor component of of drawing the clock. Okay, that makes sense. Conceptual deficits. Conceptual deficits are associated with loss or impaired ability to access the knowledge of attributes of a clock, features of a clock, the meaning of a clock. So if we were to uh, see a drawing that doesn't even look like a clock, we might see that that person might have uh, some sort of semantic memory loss or uh, issues in in, uh, uh, remembering what the clock is. You might have the hands do not represent a time or that the hands are absent. Mm-hmm. This actually, when I was uh, on the unit doing this with, with other patients, I actually saw a couple of versions of this where I would get two clocks with just numbers all over the place. And it really just didn't have any meaning.
0: It seemed like the, the people that you were doing the clock with had a tough time kind
1: of conceptualizing the clock itself. Correct. And what's interesting is it correlates a lot to the way I would communicate with those individuals. It seemed like those particular patients had a really hard time keeping a a, a thought going.
2: Now I've got a question for you just to chime in here. Uh, Does this have anything to do, like this whole conceptual thing, does it have anything to do with... um kind of a, 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 a executive motor functions, making a decision and trying to create something kind of a, a extended planning. Cause you kind of have to put things in order and do so, things in a certain way. Otherwise you're just going to, you know, mess things up. Absolutely.
1: Time. So in each of the, the different, uh, subtypes of, uh, neurocognitive de- deficits seem to be listed here. So frontotemporal dementia have, uh, has a uh, component to this vascular dementia parkinson's alzheimer's huntingtons each of these have motor components to them and the ability to create a uh, plan in my head to execute what i'm thinking about uh so I, I think you're spot on there taylor um lesions that we see in this this particular deficit are lesions in the left inferior fronto-parietal. Apercular cortices, uh, lateral temporal lobes. So you have these areas of the brain that are are greatly associated with uh, executive functions and and putting together a concept.
0: And just uh, to point out something very quickly here, we're now not talking about screening for these specific types of conditions. We're talking about how this test might correlate to deficits that would have meaning as the person that you're sitting in front of goes back home and tries to either live independently or with some level of support. Correct. Uh,
1: The next one I think on the list I have is spatial and planning deficits. Absolutely, so these are errors in the layout of the numbers on the clock. So this is like your spatial neglect sort of thing. Uh, You might have planning gaps. Uh, this is more common in Alzheimer's dementia than it is in frontotemporal dementia than it is in schizophrenia based on the studies that were were looked at uh, when talking about spatial planning deficits. Uh, there are impairment of the non-dominant he- hemisphere. That is something that I, I was taught in medical school in my first year to screen for. And that was really what I thought the clock drawing test was supposed to do. So non-dominant hem- hemisphere is, is the spatial space and planning deficit.
0: I think the classic example is a set of numbers on one side of the clock and the answer is there's been a very large uh, stroke from anterior cerebral. That sounds about right. Please do not remember that for any (laughs) test. I'm leaning forward (laughs) into the microphone to make sure everybody hears that. Uh, That is not going to be something you want to rely on for anything you're doing on a test. Uh,
1: Perseveration. Yeah. This is the word that I can't pronounce. <laughs> well, don't perseverate on <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so that, that is exactly what it is. It's a continuation or recurrence of an activity uh, without the appropriate stimulus. So in this particular test, what that looks like is numbers going from 1 to 25, where we should have stopped at 12, and why are we still writing numbers?
0: <laughs> so, Every once in a while, I think I've seen a patient who will keep circling the clock as well. It's like they they just can't stop and lift up the the pen that they're using to to complete the circle. Absolutely. And I've I've also um, I think I've seen uh, and I'm not sure if this would be perseveration or executive planning or encoding, but the idea that somebody will feel like they have to draw the clock hand. All the way to the uh, end of the the circle right instead of stopping with the shorter hand and I'm not sure if that is considered an encoding error or a perseveration error but it's something I've thought about a lot as I've seen yeah hand length not uh, not be accurate
1: yeah I've seen that as well as I was as I was doing some research on this and having clock drawing tests in the unit um, and I saw that a lot and so I, I don't know what that would be but uh, perseveration is a good hypothesis there I think I mean, it's consistent with having more than uh, two hands on the clock, things like that. So it's, it's the idea that we're just continuing on with whatever action when we should have stopped. So that would make sense.
0: The last one I have, I think we're at uh, number six here, and that is stimulus-bound behaviors. And this is one of my favorites. I have to admit this. This is... Uh I love teaching students about
1: stimulus-bound behaviors. You, you know, I noticed you were going out of order or you skipped that one, and I was like, Dude, are we not going to talk about stimulus-bound response? Uh, and then I realized what you were doing. Skillfully done, not to call you out, <laughs> but uh, clearly shows that you've been doing this for a little bit. Actually, it actually was an accident. Oh, was it? <laughs> I thought that was by design. Sometimes uh, a cigar bad. is just a cigar. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> so th- this one's interesting. So when we look at the way we word this test, I think this is where this is important. When we tell a patient to put the uh, time to 10 past uh, 11, and they are unable to recode that particular request into setting the minute hand at the 2 rather than the 10, um, that is the stimulus, that is an example of a stimulus-bound response. In other words, the
0: uh, 10... Pulls the patient or the the subject into it, rather than the the patient going to the right number. Right. Exactly. A great example of this is if if I'm uh, walking up to you and I offer a fist bump or a handshake, and I suddenly pull my hand back and and <laughs> you know uh, smooth my hair back on the side. Right you're going to fall for that every time because your stimulus-bound behavior is to be drawn in by a hand that's reaching out for
1: a form of socially accepted communication, right? Yeah, there's a patient on the on the unit that does that to us a lot. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm very aware of that. There's also a YouTube video that one of the other medical students pointed out that uh, this individual asks for directions and then in the middle of asking directions, hand people an orange that as they're talking. And they will just take the orange. That's a it's just socially acceptable
0: Nor we, we take
1: things that are handed to us.
0: Don't do that in Vegas.
1: <laughs> Correct. Uh, so we have tons of, of these recoding errors that, that could show up on the test. There's some examples if you, if you go and, and you can do a quick Google search of that. Uh, this commonly shows up in patients with Alzheimer's, dementia, Huntington's disease, Parkinson's. Uh, frontotemporal dementia, there's lots of reasons why that might occur uh, in this particular test. So
0: we've chuckled occasionally during the podcast, never at the idea of a major or minor neurocognitive disorder. Correct. Hopefully, if anybody here is chuckling in this, it's that we're chuckling at ourselves as we try to learn and understand this and be better at, at identifying these problems.
1: Absolutely. I think that, you know, as, as we kind of wrap things up here, I, I there was a study from the that I found on the Cochrane Library that talked about, you know, really what what is the best way to use this test, especially in the primary care setting. Um, like I mentioned before, my grandmother is is currently progressing through Alzheimer's dementia, and is is really struggling with it. The family is having a hard time making a a decision about what to do with that. I might be sharing too much. Oh, oh well. Uh, it. And, and honestly, I, I respect any primary care provider that can use a tool properly and screen somebody and get the appropriate care as soon as possible. Because this real, I, I think that these types of conditions are really caught by primary care, you know, way before they're family. caught by others.
0: Caught by family,
1: yeah. And primary care, right? Yeah, yeah. In the primary care setting, but it's definitely the family members that say something's wrong. And we need to be able to, to move on a dime and, and find out what's going on mm-hmm. and r- make the right referral. Uh, the Cochrane Review article that I just mentioned uh, did a, essentially a study that wh- where can we use this? And it was on the mini cog that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. And when you combine the clock drawing test with the, with the uh, three-word recall You end up increasing the sensitivity from that 50-something percent that we mentioned earlier up to 76 percent, and you take the uh, specificity and take it up to 73 percent. So still not perfect. It's not 95 percent plus, but it's a little bit better. And I I just think that if we're going to be using a test, which it seems like we've been using this test for a while, uh, let's make sure that we understand what it's about. We understand its limitations understand that it might not give us the full range of differential diagnosis that we need because uh, I, I don't think that the clock drawing test by itself does what we want it to
0: so this is this is another kind of interesting point to make I think yesterday we had a podcast on yoga would have been I think two podcasts back now and uh, Miles really really wants yoga <laughs> to work for PTSD I,
1: I won't stop teasing about it uh, we had a my we had dinner last night, and my child started screaming, and everybody got on edge, and I told them we should start doing some yoga <laughs> <laughs> and And yet, this is kind of similar for me.
0: but let's be honest. you still want to do the draw clock because it's sexy.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's a good test, especially in the like I said earlier, the social implications. I love being able to. Look at somebody like, look at this clock. This is a bad clock. It's not written. It's not done correctly. Something's wrong. Let's go investigate it. But I, I think it's also good to recognize if the clock looks fine, it doesn't mean we're done. doesn't mean we're done. And that, that makes it a difficult screening tool, right? Correct. So you
0: still want to use it even though it's not a good screening yeah, tool. Yeah, and, and honestly, so, I might
1: still use it. I, I still think I will use it. I, I think I'll use it with a grain of salt, though. Can I call you Miles? Yeah, I guess, <laughs> or Marvin, or Marvin. Uh, that's an inside joke. Sorry, guys. Uh, uh, so,
0: i I don't remember what the sensitivity and specificity were for the Mocha at this point. My recollection is that our MMSE is not a strong tool either, and and I think maybe the best point we could take from this is. As you said, know your limitations, but be aware that this isn't uh, there's going to be further changes, I think, until we find the right tool and if I can remember at some point, hopefully I can add an addendum to this and maybe add the sensitivity and specificity for the MOCA on identifying
1: a dementia sure. because we do need something right yeah we we definitely do. We need to know our tests and know what works and and get comfortable with it so uh Taylor, take home for you on this podcast
2: so. Uh, I will be dealing with, in uh, physical medicine and rehab, people who are cognitively, uh, you know, uh, not all there. Um, So
0: they've had a traumatic brain injury and would meet the criteria for cognitive um, impairment. Cognitive impairment and the name of the diagnosis is no longer a dementia due to TBI, but uh, neurocognitive disorder specifier TBI, right? Yeah. So there's...
2: uh, it, it will just help me uh, really understand where some of these other patients are coming from, or you know, chronic fallers—people that fall all the time, break things. They may have something else uh, missing there that just you know, something to just kind of open my eyes, right? Open a few extra doors and go, hey, do I recognize something else here in some of my patients? So it'll be it'll be really helpful to kind of take this forward in my residency next year.
0: Very good. Lance, what was the thing that surprised you the most about this uh, podcast?
1: That, that the clock isn't what I thought it was. <laughs> uh, I, I, re- I still remember our, our principles of clinical medicine lecture where we talked about our neuro exam and it seemed like our neuro exam was so perfect. And it turns out it's not. Um, <laughs> and just because I've been taught something doesn't mean that it's, it's the perfect thing. And it's the art of medicine. To constantly be learning something new to learn how to use it and if, if that's the only tool I have I need to know its limitations I need to be able to, to look that up and, and know how to use it.
0: I I still can't get over I think for me there are a couple of things I learned one was I realized that I had not been paying close enough attention to the change in nomenclature for the Uh, major and minor neurocognitive disorders from the dementia diagnoses. And the other thing I think that I learned was that there's now a great story that I can use to help describe the the shortcomings of, I learned this from my preceptor, so I know it's good, right? Because I I think 98% of physicians are using draw a clock. Holy cow. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. And it's never been normed. We, we, we don't even have a standardized scoring system for it, right? Yeah. And, and then uh, even now it has a great number of limitations, although I think more and more people are moving to the MOCA. I think Absolutely. the MOCA has better data. Uh, very, very well done. Gentlemen, this is definitely your last podcast, Taylor. In fact, I think your evaluation is done, and you're headed out uh, shortly after this to enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you so much for being a part of the team here. We ha- enjoyed having you here over the last month. Lance, I'm not sure, but I think you're stuck here a little bit longer today and maybe even tomorrow morning. You guys may be coming back and I hate to tell you that. Uh, I know you've got a test on Friday and I like to be able to let you guys, as hard as you've worked over the month, get, get back to that. But thank you so much for uh, a wonderful podcast.
1: Well, well done. Thank you. I, I Like I said, I've loved this rotation. I think that it's challenged me in ways that are unique that I haven't been challenged before. And uh, I learned more from from this particular uh, assignment doing the, this podcast than I ever thought I would, so <laughs> it was a lot of fun.
0: Very glad to hear that. On that note, gentlemen, thank you, and T-Mel. T-Mel, you